open our Bibles to John chapter 4 here this morning. We are looking this morning as um, in launching things for this fall, this week, next week, um, and the week after that, as we are highlighting things that we are doing as a church, that God has called us to do as a church, and for you, how you can maximize these things. This Sunday, particularly focusing on how do we maximize our worship. Next Sunday, highlighting children's ministry. After that, our missions and the things that God has called us to as the body of believers. Starting mid-September, we're going to be going into our series for the fall, dealing with tough topics, um, things particularly that you're hearing about a lot in the news, especially in a political year. About um, And so we're going to be looking at a series of what does the Bible say about fill in the blank, beginning to look, we'll start off looking at what does the Bible say about the Bible? Why do we understand the Bible? Why do we believe the Bible? And then after that, we'll be dealing and go, addressing hot topics that are present in our culture right now about race, racial, second, racial reconciliation, gender identity, homosexuality, um, ethnicity, uh, marriage, and a variety of other issues that are widely being discussed right now, and also how do we as Christians respond and engage with love and grace and truth in the midst of a culture, in the midst of, for many of us, families, for many of us, co-workers and friends that hold to radically different views than us. What does it look like for us as individual Christians and as a church to be salt and light in this place? We started that up mid-September. Here today, focusing on how do you maximize your worship? How do you maximize what we do here on Sunday mornings on a weekly basis? And so to look at this, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24 this morning. This story, this little, this vignette of teaching comes when Jesus is meeting this woman, this passage where he meets this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, a passage that is very well known. Um, but as Jesus meets this woman, this is a woman who is someone of a different gender, which was a really big deal back then, someone of a different race and ethnicity, someone of a different social class, someone who was steeped in adultery. You might say that she would be the least likely churchgoer. And yet it is with this woman that Jesus engages in some of the most profound teaching about what worship is and how we are to maximize the worship that we give to God. Entering into the story, we begin at John chapter 4, verses 19. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet because of the things that he said. She continued, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would send your spirit, that we would rightly hear and rightly respond to your word this morning. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen. Focusing on worship here, there is just really one principle we're going to look at, and then we're going to see how this principle is demonstrated and applied in our worship services here at Cornerstone. And the principle, quite simply, is this from John chapter 4, is that God is seeking worshipers to worship him. 
That's it. God is seeking worshipers to worship him. Let's break this down to begin with this first aspect, is that God is the one who is seeking. God is the one who is pursuing. God is the one who is looking and seeking worshipers to come worship him. The story of Scripture tells us that originally God created us, created mankind, to be in a relationship with him, to be created as beings who worship him. But what happened is that instead of worshiping God, we centered our lives on ourselves. We turned, and Scripture tells us that we worshiped other things. We started worshiping created things rather than the Creator. What happened is that our worship, the things that we ascribe worth and value to in our lives, got all out of whack. And so when it comes to worshiping God, we don't even know how to worship. When we do worship left to our own, we make worship in our own image out of the things that we most want to be. But what Christianity and the Scripture shows us is that there is just a very simple order to the Christian faith. There's a simple order that cannot and must not be reversed. But there is a simple order. And the order is this, is that God acts and we respond. God seeks and we respond to the God who seeks us out. Scripture makes this abundantly clear in several different ways. One passage of Scripture tells us that we are dead in our sin. What does that mean? It means that we are spiritually dead. And if we are dead, what can a dead man do? Nothing. A dead man can't get up. A dead man can't walk. A dead man can't seek God. A dead person can't worship. A dead person can't respond. If there's any life that is demonstrated or coming from someone who is dead, it is because there is a force that has come in and has given that dead person life. And so it is with us, is that we are dead in our sins, but God has made us alive through Jesus Christ for those that are followers and those that trust in him and worship him. And so God acts and we respond. Again, Scripture tells us that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has wandered our own way. That left to our own devices, we go out, we wander away. And we even sing a hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Is that our hearts turn away from God, don't seek God, don't even want to worship God. And if we did, we distort it in what we do. Sometimes there's this perception that the way that worship works is that there is God who is just waiting for people to respond. He is just waiting for people to come to him. And he's saying, listen, I'm available. I'm here. If you're going to come to me, you know, you got to make the first move. You got to take the first step. But that couldn't be farther from the truth because scripture makes clear, as this passage shows us, that God is seeking worshipers, that God always takes the first step. That God is the one who pursues, who seeks us out, who calls us back, who draws us in and draws people to worship him. God is the one who takes the initiative and God is seeking us out. Well, who is God seeking? Tells us here that God is seeking worshipers. Well, what are those and who are these worshipers? Well, we see from this passage that that, those worshipers that God is seeking include the most unlikely people who wouldn't be at church, like this woman at the well. It includes people that God is seeking worshipers of different tongues and tribes and races. He is seeking people who are broken, covered with shame, covered with sin. That God is seeking people to come and to worship him. He is seeking people that know God to worship him. And he is seeking people that don't know him to come and worship him. 
What does that mean for us here at Cornerstone? It means that God is seeking the people of Southern Maryland to come and to worship him. He is seeking Christians to come and to worship him. And God is seeking non-Christians to come and to worship him. And we as a church exist in part and shown in partly in our worship services that we are here so that Southern Maryland would be drawn into the worship of God. And as we are drawn into the worship of God, that we would be encouraged in our belief and challenged in our unbelief. He is seeking worshipers. Let me say that again. He is seeking worshipers. It's plural. That the aspect of worship and the worship that God is seeking is that there is the God coming to us, God taking the initiative. There is our response to God. But notice, it is our response to God. He is seeking worshipers. That there is a horizontal dimension to worship. That in our corporate worship services, when we worship together, there is an experience of God that Scripture informs us cannot happen individually. There is a communion with God in the body of his people that does not occur by yourself listening to praise music and a sermon on the radio by yourself in your car. There is an experience in the people of God as the people of God come together and to worship him. And God is drawing a people. He is seeking worshipers from every background, every walk of life, from every tongue and tribe and nation to come together and to worship him. Well, what are some of the characteristics? Verse 23 tells us of these worshipers that God is seeking. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus gives this answer in response to a question that the woman asked him. She said to him, we know that when the Messiah comes, he'll make all things clear. Now let me ask you, you Jews worship down there in Jerusalem, and we Samaritans, we worship up here. So which way is it going to be when the Messiah comes? And Jesus says, you don't get it. He says, it's not about where you worship. It's not about these particular forms of worship. You could say it's not about particular styles of worship. What worship is about is is worship that the Father is seeking, is worship that is in spirit and in truth. Well, what does that mean? To worship in spirit. To worship from the heart, showing the love, affections, that our love and affections and desires are fully set on God as the object of what we worship and what we love and desire. Worship in spirit. Worship in truth. To worship God according to the truth of God's word. Letting his truth strike the core of our being and causing it to respond. Worship in spirit and truth from the heart and according to God's word. And there is a tendency to err in either direction, to make it all about the heart, to make it all about the emotional response without the truth of Scripture guiding that. And there's an error sometimes the other way, to make it all about truth without the heart responding and the emotional response. And God and Jesus are unsatisfied with either. It's both, worship in spirit and truth. God is seeking worshipers. Well, to do what? He is seeking worshipers to worship him. He is seeking worshipers to worship him. In the Hebrew and Greek, there's two groups of terms that are translated in our English Bibles as worship. The vast majority of them refer to laborer service. We translate it as worship. The original language says to give God your labor, to give God your service. Most often referring to the priests and those in the Old Testament doing the work of the temple. But it's describing that we are giving to God the honor and praise that he is due. 
that we are coming before him, bowing down, bending the knee, falling prostrate, declaring and ascribing honor and worth to God. The word worship is an English word, and it actually helps us with in this instance, is that worship comes from the old English word of worth, W-R-T-H, worthship. So to worship is to ascribe to God his worthship, his value, his honor, his dignity, to give God the worth that he is due. Well, what does this mean practically for us? It means if God is seeking worshipers to worship him, to give God the worth that he is due, then what happens is that a worship service such as this is not so much about what we do up here, but about what you do in the congregation, about whether or not you are bending the knee, whether you or not you are ascribing to God the honor and worth that he is due. And so for a Christian, the measurement of the quality of worship is not how well the preacher preaches, not how well the singers sing, not how well the prayers pray, but the quality with which you give to God the worship that he is due. You know, sometimes people say things like, oh, that church has really good worship. That church has really good worship. Well, what's meant by that? It's usually meant, well, that church has really good worship. I really like it. I, I get a lot out of it. You know, I'm encouraged by it. I really, I really enjoyed it. I received a lot. I, I received a lot from it. And if that is our fundamental attitude to what we are doing when we attend a worship service, what we have done is we have reduced the worship of God into another competing form of entertainment. I like that book. It makes me think about some things. You know, I really enjoyed that movie the other day. It was a really pleasant evening that we shared together, was it not? I enjoy these things. I got a lot out of it. It really benefited me. I really like that. It made me think about some things. But a worship service and what we're doing here is not another competing form of entertainment, but rather our worship service is designed and set up to provide the context, the structure, and the people as the body of God to gather together and to ascribe to God the worth, praise, and honor that he is due. Dick Kaufman, who is a pastor, um, author, a very humble and godly man, he asked this question. He says, when we leave worship, we should first ask not, what did I get out of it? But how did I do in my work of honoring the Lord? When you, drive, when you leave here and you're riding in your car and you're sitting alone around, the question that should be asked, that should be asked among families is not, hey, what did you get out of the service today? What did you enjoy today? What did you learn today? But the question of, this is here for you to give God the honor and praise that he is due. How did you do in your labor, in your service of worship, of honoring, of honoring the Lord and giving him the praise that he is due? Now, maybe, maybe it really is that worship that is really honoring to God and really good for God will also be really good for us, but that's secondary. Sometimes other people, the question comes up, particularly in discussions at this time and in this place in our country, in this world, to say, well, is a worship service, is worship for Christians or is worship for non-Christians? Who's it for? Is it worship for non-Christians or is worship service for Christians? The answer is it's for neither. Worship is for God. That's who worship is for. 
Worship, a worship service is not for non-Christians. It's not for Christians. It is for God to give God the worship that he is due. And we strive to do that in an understandable way that is centered on God, giving him worship, and believing that by doing so, what happens necessarily is that we are challenged in our unbelief and we are encouraged in our belief and to live in response to God's grace and to live in response to God's initiative. God is seeking worshipers to worship him. Well, let's begin to look at how that applies here on Sunday morning at Cornerstone. How do we do at, how do we do, how do we go about giving God the worship that he is due? Well, it must be acknowledged that for many of us, maybe just for some of us, maybe a few of us, is that our worship on Sunday mornings has already been determined Saturday night. It's already been determined by how late we stay up, how exhausted we come to a worship service, how much we've got planned out for what the rest of the day are so that when you come to a worship service, you're not thinking about God. You're not thinking about giving praise and glory to God. What you're thinking about is all the other things that are on your list that you have to do as soon as the service is over. And man, would that guy just be quiet so he can get out of here a couple minutes earlier today? Wouldn't that be nice? And so this act of our service to worship is so often determined the night before on Saturdays for how we've spent our Saturdays, how we've spent our Saturday nights, and how we're planning to spend our Sundays. But what Scripture calls us is to prepare ourselves for worship. It says, keep the Sabbath day holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a day of rest that is holy to me. What does that mean practically? It means practically do your grocery shopping and your chores on another day of the week. Do those on Saturdays. Why? So that on Sunday you can clear your mind and prepare your heart coming in here on Sunday mornings, preparing your heart to worship to God and to respond to his grace and to respond to his truth and to worship him. We are here to worship. All right, well, let's take a look at our worship services in particular. Pull out your bulletins. We're going to walk walk through this. And what I want you to do here is I want you to understand what we do on Sunday mornings in our worship services. And I want you to understand this so that you more fully engage and so that you don't just sit here on Sunday mornings going like, okay, roll the credits, next thing's coming, next thing's coming. But let's pay attention to what's going on here in the midst of our worship service. We begin with this God calling us and inspiring us to worship. Why is that the case? What we saw is that God is seeking worshipers. And the reason why we worship, the one reason why we worship, is because God seeks us out. God calls us and invites us to worship him, for we would not do it on our own, nor would we come on our own. God always comes to us before we come to him. And so we gather together to worship because God is the one who calls us to worship him. A couple comments about the service in general. One is that our worships and our worship services are responsive. If you take a look at the overall picture of your bulletin there, is that there is a back and forth. There's a back and forth between God's initiation and our response. God calls us to worship. We exalt the Lord. Having exalted the Lord, we respond by the exposure and confessing our sin. In confessing our sin, God restores us by his grace. Then God speaks to us through his word, and then we respond. There is a back and forth of God's initiation and our response. Um, tied in, seen throughout the worship service. Other next key thing about our worship service is that our worship services, worship is participatory. Quite intentionally, our worship services are not designed for you to sit back and observe like you're watching a movie at the movie theater. They are designed for you to participate and designed for you to engage with God, engage with the people of God, and be moved to response. Now, If you're here today and you are exploring Christianity and you are exploring what this means and you want to learn more about this, that's fine. 
you know, observe, participate to the level that you, that makes sense that you can do so with honesty and with integrity. And, 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 but know that the service is here so that you would be drawn into the worship of God. It is participatory. Third thing about our worship service is that they are communal, that we worship in community. And you see an example of this in our call to worship from today. It's usually responsive. Why is it responsive? So that we, as a community, are calling one another with the words of God, speaking the words of God, calling one another into the worship of God. That this is, the reason why this is responsive is not so that you guys would have something to say and stay awake, but rather so that as we are engaged in worship and calling us to worship, that we are calling one another, that the people of God are calling each other with the words of God to worship him and declare who God is and to come to worship him. So we worship in community. The fourth thing to note about our worship services, that our worship services is spirit-led. We open up with God calling us and inspiring our worship. And there is a prayer specifically with the focus of asking God to inspire our worship. Why? Because we need God to guide, to direct, and inspire our worship. We need the Holy Spirit to open up our hearts so that we engage with God and are receptive to him and are receptive to his word. And so we pray, celebrating and acknowledging God's presence in the work that he is already doing among us and seeking his spirit to be at work in this present moment right now. That's how our worship services begin with God's initiation. Well, what happens after God calls us to worship? After we come into the presence of God, we respond by exalting the Lord, by giving him praise, seeing who God is by praising him, by with hymns, songs, and spiritual songs, giving God the honor and worth that he is due. What we strive to do in our song selection that we have there is songs and lyrics and music that embraces the richness of the past, acknowledging that we are entering into a long history of God working throughout the world, also embracing the freshness of the present that the Spirit of God is continuing to be at work at today and to do so with the hope of the future. All of this to give God the praise that he is due. Next thing that happens is having come, God called us to worship, having come into the presence of the Lord, as we see in, the, in Isaiah's encounter with God, as Isaiah is brought into the temple of the Lord and he hears the angels crying, holy, 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 in the presence of God, what is Isaiah's response? He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Is that when we come into the presence of God and encounter God, it exposes who we are and it exposes our own sinfulness. But there's another thing that, that happens here is that scripture reminds us and teaches us that it is the kindness of a loving God that calls us to confession. That God calls us to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with him. And we confess our sins, not in order that maybe now God would forgive us, but we confess our sins because God has already forgiven us in Christ Jesus if we are believers in him. Let me put it this way. God hates sin so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die and to pay the penalty for our sins and to purchase a place in heaven for us by rising from the grave. It cost him greatly. And it was on the cross that Jesus bore our shame and our guilt and our sin. He paid the price and he paid it in full. And he doesn't want us to bear it any longer. 
He doesn't want us to carry around unconfessed sin in our life as if it wasn't forgiven. And so it is the kindness of God, not his judgment. It is the kindness of God that calls us to confession, to embrace what Jesus Christ has already done, and once again experience his renewal and forgiveness. Not only are we called to this, but we are called to do it as a community. Why? Because as a community, we are called to be a community that is honest about who we are. Honest with the realization that, yes, I, not in generalities, but in particular, that I am a sinner and I need a rescuer. That I am one who needs to be saved from my sins and that the church is not a place for people that has it all together, but for sinners that Jesus has come and died for who are embracing his forgiveness. Our service, we use a written prayer there. Why? Because it invites us to speak words that are very honest about, um, are very honest about our sin. For many of us, those are words that don't come naturally for us. Individually, it's a time in our service, this is followed by a time of silent confession. Why? Because it is so easy for us to run through the reek without confessing our sins to God. So easy for us to not confess and then to become callous to our sins and not even be aware of our sins and the distance and barriers that are growing between us and the Lord. One other fact that's just interesting for us here at Cornerstone, a couple years ago we did a worship survey, and one of the questions was asked, what are the number of top things that inhibit your worship at Cornerstone? Number one response was distractions during the worship service. Not surprising, right? Something happens, kids get up, someone's screaming, not surprising. But we're families together, that's part of being a community together. Number two reason, almost as high as the first reason, what inhibits your worship? Unconfessed sin in my life. I found that particularly fascinating. I found it fascinating because not only was there an acknowledgement that there is unconfessed sin in my life, but there is a weekly realization that, that what, inhibits my, what inhibits my worship on Sunday morning is that I have unconfessed sin in my life that is preventing and inhibiting my worship on Sunday mornings when I am coming together to give God the praise and worship that he is due. So quite consciously, we have a prayer of confession and a time of individual confession because maybe this is the only time during the week when you've actually paused before God. For some of you, it's the only silent moment that you have had all week long. And for us to come before him, and he invites us to confess our sins so that we would embrace the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. We see that immediately following. Because we confess our sin, and what happens when we do that? Immediately, God restores us by his grace. That is the, the, the back-and-forth response. It is God's kindness that invites us to confess our sins. It is God's grace that restores us. That we have confession and restoration, not so that our heads are hang low, but so that you would hear the good news of the gospel, that through Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, that you can hold, pick your head up. And I find that this announcement, declaration from many different passages of Scripture, is one of the most beautiful moments in our worship service of there being this declaration once again in the words of Scripture reinforcing the truth that you are forgiven and that your forgiveness is not based upon your hopes and your desires, but your forgiveness is based upon the very promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You are forgiven and restored. So, having done that, having been cleansed by God's grace, we then go before the throne of grace and we pray for his church. 
and for the mission of God's church and for the advancement of God's church, interceding on behalf of one another, interceding on behalf of this congregation. You know, in, in America today, with a lot of things that are happening in worship services today, a lot of churches just simply don't pray during their worship services. It is not uncommon for people to ask, me, ask the question, why do you spend so much time praying to your word during your worship service? And the answer is quite simple. is because God calls us to pray during our worship services. He calls us to intercede. He calls us to pray for rulers and princes. He calls us to pray for one another. Paul, in every letter of his of, of every letter that Paul writes, he is asking the church to pray for him and to pray for the advancement of the gospel. And we do so as a body of believers because God hears prayer, he answers prayer, and he uses prayer to advance his kingdom in this place and to the ends of the earth. So having been called to worship, having given God praise, having seeing our sinfulness and being restored by God's grace, coming before him and praying for the mish, God's mission, praying that God's kingdom would advance. You know what the next thing that happens in our service after that? Is we offer ourselves to do it. We're praying for God's kingdom to advance, for God's work to be done. What happens then is that we unite ourselves in community. There is announcements, which really are information about the work that God has called us to do as a church about the mission that God has called us to in advancing the truth of the gospel and making disciples and worshiping him in, in doing missions and doing mercy ministry. This is a time for us as a community to gain information that is pertinent to our life as a covenant community. Why do we do it? Because we here at Cornerstone, what happens on Sunday morning, this time together is not your Sunday morning entertainment, but it is us gathering together as the community, as the covenant community of God, as the family of God who is joined together, called to live lives together, called to serve God together. And what we have here is just a time of community information of here are some updates about how we are to live as the people of God outside of these walls. We highlight that and we celebrate that in our announcements. It's not just a matter of getting business done, but part of who we are as this people here at Cornerstone. After that, what happens is here's what's going on. Here's how we unite our lives in community. That's followed by offering ourselves to God and his service, offering um, both the offertory itself, but also uh, in service and also in service to him, sometimes in giving over and above our tithes to this work? How does this fit? Having been called to worship by God, having confessed our sins and being restored by his grace and praying for his work, now it's our time to respond to the work that we just prayed for and respond by offering ourselves and supporting that work and supporting the advancement of it. Do you want to note that our, the time of offering that we have here, we really need to have the mindset, because it is true, that it is one of the most significant acts, if not the most significant act of worship in our worship service. If you consider that in the Old Testament, when people went to worship, the majority, two-thirds, three-quarters, of the time that they spent at the service of worship was in the offering. The majority of the time was spent in that period. Why? Because they were taking their lamb, and they were going up and getting their lamb butchered and getting their lamb slaughtered and then their lamb getting taken over to the altar and their lamb getting toasted on the altar. 
burned up on the altar, if it was a different offering that was given, because there were many, some of those would be followed by a feast or a barbecue, depending upon which offering was being given. And most of the worship service was spent in the act of offering. And so, in a microcosm, our offering is an expression of our desire to devote our whole selves to God's service. Why? In response to his love and grace and faithfulness to us. It's also a very practical demonstration of our worship. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also. You cannot serve God and money. And our offering is an expression of what you serve, of what you worship, and what you live for. And it is a calling and a time for us to, as a significant act of worship, to declare that and to give to God the honor and the worth that he is due. This is then followed by a song, offertory song, sometimes a slideshow. Um, and part of, also, why is that there? That it's not just simply a time filler, but it is a consciously toned down period in our worship service so that you would use that time not to run through your checklist of what's supposed to be happening in the afternoon, rather, that you would use that time to prepare your hearts for the Word of God. That you would prepare your heart to hear God's Word, to, cl- to clear your mind of distractions, and to focus on God's Word that you would respond to it. That then leads us, having prepared our hearts for worship, that then leads us to the center of our worship services of God speaking to us through his word. And the reading and preaching of God's word stands at the center of our worship services, and scripture would affirm it to be one of the most privileged periods of worship. Why? Because the power of God is at work, not through ink on paper, not through scripture verses lit up on a screen, not through the creative or uncreative rhetoric of the preacher. But God's Spirit is at work, working by and with and through the Word of God. And it is through the preaching of, the, it is through the preaching of God's Word, Scripture tells us, that God's Spirit now works in the community of faith, works in us to comfort, to console, to challenge, to convict, to inspire, to deepen the faith and the life of the people of God, to encourage belief and to challenge unbelief, and to live and to celebrate the grace of God in our own lives. It's a time for us to listen to God's word for you at this time in this place to be applied in our lives. Just so that you know, part of our commitment as a church, our firm commitment as a church, is that our sermons, my sermons, and what I'm held accountable for, is that our sermons are gospel-centered. What that means is that not only are they based in Scripture and from the Scripture, but that they are based in, in the, when Jesus was walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Acts tells us that Jesus um, explained to them from all of Scripture how all of Scripture was fulfilled in, in Jesus. And that is what we do here, that's what I do here on Sunday mornings, is this focus on the gospel being explained and expounded from all of Scripture. And you need to know this is not a given, and I'm happy to have a longer discussion about this. I can talk about this for hours, like at depth for hours. This is so important. Sinclair Ferguson, who is a seminary, um, a seminary faculty member, he's a pastor of a church, he's written many books, he is a stalwart of the Christian faith. If you are a believer in the gospel, and you are a believer in the authority of Scripture today, you have, in part, Sinclair Ferguson to thank 
for his work that he has done in the 20th century. Um, I know it's a name not familiar to many of you, but he is a, a man that God has used mightily in the 20th century. He's Scottish. And he has been training pastors. He is a speaker. He speaks around the country and around the globe. Um, he follows up and does additional training for pastors who've been in ministry for some time. And in one of his books on preaching, this is his observation on the state of evangelical preaching in America and around the globe. He says this about evangelical pastors who believe in the authority of Scripture, who are committed to teaching from Scripture. This is his statement. He says this, Not only do most evangelical ministers not preach Christ in the Old Testament, they don't preach Christ from the New Testament either. Many sermons from the Gospel where the focus is explicitly on the person of Jesus, never mind from the Old Testament, are far from Christ-centered. Even entire sermon series that are preached out of one of the gospel accounts may not even communicate a thing about the gospel itself. And I'm happy to explain what that means and how, do, how can you tell and if, you're, if you're, God's moving you, away from you, moving you away from here, how to evaluate that and to understand that. But the point I want to emphasize here is that it is not a given that because someone is preaching from the Bible that they are preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God, which alone saves. And our commitment here and what I'm held accountable to is that to explain and to apply the gospel as revealed in all of Scripture to daily life and stand at the center of our worship service as God calls us to. What happens after that? After hearing God's word preached is that we respond to God's word in song. We respond... um, a song that's usually chosen based upon the theme or the passage of the, script, of the, of the scripture or the preaching, so that we would respond in, in faith, give us words to give God praise in response to his grace, focused typically on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It also serves to prepare us for the Lord's Supper. What happens after that is that we then commune with God in the Lord's Supper, particularly in this worship service. I'll describe that more in a couple minutes, but it's a time when all of the worship service is made visible. What happens in the rest of our service is from the celebration of the Lord's Supper, there is a time of silence, as particularly as leaders are moving through. But quite deliberately, it is a time of the last chunk of our worship service is intentionally building. It is an ending crescendo, going from a time of silence and meditation and a time of silence for you to individually respond to the Word of God Participation in the Lord's Supper for you to respond to what God has done and to recommit yourself to what he is calling us to do. And then it continues to build as we go out in celebration for God's grace. It's not the celebration of the Lord's Supper. is a celebration of the Lord's Supper. It is not a funeral dirge. Jesus died and he rose again. We celebrate that. And he calls us to use this to remember what he has done. And the ending crescendo there is to celebrate God's mercy and grace. Until finally, at the end, building to this point, we get sent out with God's blessing. Where God sends us out with his blessing. His initiative, his initiation once again. Now we come to this final, this God sending us out with his blessing, uh, you know, formerly known as a benediction, which means a good word, benedicte, um, good word. It's a benediction. Well, what is it? Is it a prayer? Is it a command? No, it's a good word. It is, it is being sent out with God's grace and blessing. And it is a fitting end to a worship service. 
God, having called us to worship him, now sending us out with his grace. It is not a command, which would imply that the Christian life is only lived out by earning God's favor and measuring up to what he calls us to do. It is not merely, it is not a well-wish, which would fail to convey the power and beauty that God promises to go with us. No, it is a final blessing of God sending his people, God taking the initiative to send his people out with his grace, with the promise that he will go with them. And our response to that is lived out throughout this week. Also, as a church, you know, you hear me say, stretch forth your hands to receive the benediction, receive God's blessing. Why? Because it's just a physical act of worship saying, you know, have you ever, if you see people, pictures of people with their, who are drowning, their hands are straight over their head, right? Is that people who are in need of help, if you ever see people who are like, um, you know, at, at food distributions, you see people with their hands up. Why? Because there are people who are saying, I need something. And it is us as the people of God saying, I need God's grace in my life. I need God's presence. I need God's blessing. And our hands are just a physical way to declare that before him. So he says, stretch forth your hands for God's blessing. And then he sends us out with his blessing so that our response would now be lived out throughout this week. Tying this all together, what does it mean? It means that God is seeking worshipers to worship him and to worship him in spirit and truth. And we're focusing on this here this morning so that we would recommit ourselves that on Sunday mornings that we would re-engage or intentionally engage, intentionally participate in the service and in the labor of ascribing to God the honor and praise and worth that he is due. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you call us to worship. Thank you that you teach us to worship. Thank you, Lord, that you alone are worthy of our worship and praise. Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit, that we would hear your call, that we would respond, that we would give you the honor and praise that you are due, that you would conform us to be more like you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the worship team comes up, we're going to be singing the song, The Heart of Worship, written by Matt Redman. And just want to give you the background of the story. Matt Redman, who was quickly becoming one of the most prominently and most prominent and most famous worship leaders in the world, um, was leading worship at his church. And what happened was that people started flocking to the church because they were, the church was known as, oh, that church has really good worship. And so what happened is that Matt Redman and the leadership of the church said, we have our worship service has turned into something that is not what God intended it to be. So what they did is that they took a break. I think it was over six months. They had worship services with no music in it whatsoever because they had turned worship into something that it wasn't supposed to be. And after they as a congregation gathered back together, this was one of the first songs that they sang as they as a church recommitted themselves to the worship of God as God calls us. Let's sing together.